0: Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. Back in session, as members of Congress come back to the Hill, we've got the latest on federal legislation concerning life and the family. Plus, we unpack troubling regulations in the Pregnant Workers' Fairness Act with Rachel Morrison of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Family of nine beatified. The Alma family was martyred after harboring Jews in their home during World War II. Their youngest child was a newborn baby. We bring you their courageous story and the details of their ongoing journey to sainthood. Parental Rights Pioneer homeschooler Michael Ferris joins us to unpack the concerning trajectory of the U.S. public school system. As gender ideology and secularism infiltrate classrooms, where can parents turn to provide their children with an education grounded in truth and beauty? Watch tonight's episode to find out. Congress is back in session this week after the month-long August recess in which members traveled back to their home districts to spend time with their constituents, fundraise, and get work done back on their home turfs. As members arrive back in the district, we've got some info about upcoming legislation on the Hill and a potential government shutdown a bit later in the program. But first, some information about the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which, as enforced, refers to pregnant women as pregnant people and also promotes abortion. Rachel Morrison is the director of the HHS Accountability Project at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and she joins me now to explain more. Rachel, thanks for being here. This law is a bit complicated because it's designed to enforce regulations that are put forth by the current administration. Can you explain how the Pregnant Workers' Fairness Act is different from other laws? So the Pregnant Workers' Fairness Act
1: filled a gap in employment law and discrimination law by requiring that employers provide their employees reasonable accommodations for pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions unless it poses an undue hardship on the employer. Now, Congress gave EOC rulemaking authority to implement this law, and their regulations would be binding on employers once they're
0: finalized. Mm. And you're an expert in this type of regulatory law, Rachel. What language in this version of the PWFA concerns you?
1: The PWFA has pretty basic language. It's supposed to be pro woman, pro mother, pro childbirth, pro baby. And yet the EOC has decided to interpret. Pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions as an imposing an abortion mandate on employers across the country that Mm -hmm. they have to facilitate and accommodate their employees' abortions. They've broadly defined pregnancy, childbirth, and related medical conditions to cover abortion, potential pregnancy, use of birth control, IVF, and other, other things that are not pregnancy, childbirth, or even medical conditions.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And so what are the actual ramifications of such a law once it's enforced? How does it impact women, for example, when they're seeking prenatal care?
1: Under the law, a woman who's seeking prenatal care who is pregnant would be entitled to a reasonable accommodation unless it poses an undue hardship from their employer. And that's what the law was supposed to do. And that's what Congress intended. However, EOC goes beyond what the law says and what Congress intended to impose this abortion mandate. Mm, Very interesting.
0: And can anything be done by members of Congress to remove the concerning language that allows for abortion, and more directly apply real resources to the people who need them, Rachel?
1: There's an opportunity after the regulations are finalized for Congress to revoke the regulations. Since it is controlled by Democrats right now, it's unlikely that that will happen. Ultimately, these regulations will probably end up in court, and the courts will have to decide whether a law that does not say abortion once Uh, And a law that was passed with Democrat co-sponsors and Republican co-sponsors saying on the floor that it does not cover abortion, whether that law does in fact require
0: abortion accommodations. Mm, We'll be keeping an eye out for that. And Rachel, is there anything else we need to know about this? This is an in the weeds topic that not a lot of people are tracking. Anything else we should know?
1: Well, the public should know that the proposed regulations by the EEOC are open for public comment. And they have an opportunity to weigh in and let their voice be heard that these that these regulations should not enforce um, an abortion mandate on employers. If they're looking for an opportunity to comment, the deadline is October 10th. Uh, A Catholic, Catholic vote uh, has... An easy way for you to comment, if you Google Catholic Vote, Abortion Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, it should be the top hit. Um, And folks can weigh in and let the EOC know that this law should be about protecting women, uh, supporting them while they're working and pregnant and after childbirth, and not imposing an abortion mandate uh, to force employers to kill, uh, be party to killing of their employees' unborn children.
0: Mm. Very good to know. Rachel Morrison of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, thanks for joining us. And now the latest from Capitol Hill, where the Republican Party seems icily divided over support for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy of California. This division could impact whether or not crucial spending bills are authorized in the coming weeks. Republicans led by Leader McCarthy have a goal of reducing the federal spending limit to about $120 billion less than what was agreed upon in the Biden debt relief deal earlier this summer. While some Republicans want to force a government shutdown before having to rely on Democrat votes to pass spending bills, Others argue that it would bode well with their constituents if they came to a deal, as it would prove to the American people that they could lead the country well, given an opportunity to control the Senate and the White House. And speaking of the White House, in a statement earlier this week, Leader McCarthy officially opened a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. The passage of these upcoming spending bills is known as the appropriations process. And each year, pro-life congressmen must work to solidify language in these bills to protect life by keeping taxpayer monies from funding abortion, both at home and overseas. We'll continue to keep you updated as these bills eventually make their way across the House floor, as long as the government doesn't shut down. And a quick update on the case that could ban chemical mail-order abortion. You may recall a few weeks ago that the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a decision that could ban the sale and shipment of the chemical abortion drug mifepristone by mail. Their reasoning centered around the rushed FDA approval of the fatal drug back in the year 2000. Now, tragically, President Biden's Department of Justice has issued a request for appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. The appeal centers on maintaining a legal way to kill innocent lives here in the United States. A DOJ spokesperson said that taking mifepristone off the market would be, quote, damaging for women seeking lawful abortions, and that for many patients, mifepristone is the best method to lawfully terminate their pregnancies. We'll keep you updated on any movement on this case at the High Court. Next up, a new ad just dropped in Ohio that uses the image of divine mercy to promote abortion. The commercial, paid for by Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights, asks Ohioans to support an upcoming ballot initiative that would overturn the state's near-total ban on abortion. The national organization Catholic Vote released a statement saying, those who want to eliminate all protections for the unborn in Ohio have resorted to exploiting images of Jesus in order to impose a radical change to the Ohio Constitution. The use of this image to advance abortion is abhorrent and reveals gross disregard for millions of Christians in Ohio. We urge those responsible for this ad to remove it immediately and apologize for the great offense it has caused. And now to Poland, where the church beatified an entire family together for the first time, including a newborn baby boy. We take a closer look at this celebration and the Ulma family's heroic virtue.
2: The little boy did not yet have a
0: name, yet today we already call him blessed. On September 10th, thousands traveled to the small village of Markova, Poland, to honor the heroic lives of the Ulma family. Cardinal Marcello Semeraro, prefect of the Vatican's dicastery for the causes of saints, celebrated Mass and unveiled the official portrait of the family. The Nazis murdered the Olmas in 1944 for sheltering members of several Jewish families in their home. Cardinal Samararo emphasized that while their story is bittersweet, their charity should be remembered above all. It would be misleading if the day of the beatification of the Olma family only served to bring to mind the terror of the atrocities perpetrated by their executioners. Instead, we want today to be a day of joy. Joseph and Victoria Alma married in 1935. In their nine years of marriage, they welcomed seven children. Father Vitold Berda, the postulator for their cause for sainthood, says Victoria and Joseph's marriage reflected their strong Catholic faith, which they eagerly shared with their young children.
3: The education they provided for their children exemplified their value system, emphasizing the importance of transmitting the most essential values with faith in Christ being the foremost. Their life was marked by mutual respect and a climate of faith, which extended to recognizing the needs of others whom they willingly assisted.
0: The family's strong values guided their decision to help hide their Jewish neighbors from authorities for two years.
3: Their true test came when faced with a crucial decision, whether to side with the unjust laws imposed by the German occupiers who punished aiding Jews or to stand with the persecuted individuals.
0: The entire family lost their lives for hiding Jews from the Nazis, including their youngest.
3: When they dug this makeshift grave, one of the witnesses recounts that from Victoria's womb, they noticed she was in advanced stages of pregnancy, and they saw the head and the chest of the baby.
0: Though this baby never had the chance to receive the sacrament of baptism, he shares in his parents' redemptive suffering. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, vice president and editorial director of EWTN News, explains that this baby received what the church has deemed baptism by blood.
2: The church uh, has always taught that uh, baptism is required for salvation. You can read that in the catechism. But the catechism also uh, clearly states uh, that uh, throughout church history uh, that those uh, who die by virtue of blood, by martyrdom, without having been baptized, are graced with salvation, uh, even though they were not baptized. In other words, baptism by blood is death, WITH AND FOR
3: CHRIST.
0: DESPITE REPORTS SUGGESTING THAT THE CHILD WOULD BE THE FIRST UNBORN BABY TO BE BEATIFIED BY THE CHURCH, THE VATICAN MADE IT CLEAR THAT THIS LITTLE BLESSED WAS A NEWBORN.
2: THEY WANTED TO BE VERY CLEAR uh, THAT uh, THE CHILD WAS BORN AT THE TIME OR CONSIDERED BORN AT THE TIME OF THE MARTYRDOM, THE EXECUTION OF uh, THE PARENTS AND THE the REST OF THE FAMILY. THE
0: HEROIC LIVES OF THE BLESSED Olma FAMILY AND THE INNOCENT LIFE OF THE NEWBORN BABY SERVE AS A REMINDER TO THE CHURCH. Church's call to holiness for families. Without ever having uttered a word, today the little
2: blessed cries out to the modern world to welcome love and protect life, especially that of the defenseless and marginalized, from the moment of conception until natural death.
0: We look forward to continuing our coverage of this blessed family as we await their canonization. Coming up, we sit down with Michael Ferris, a pioneer in the homeschooling movement who has a lot to say about advancing parental rights in our increasingly secular culture. Plus, we speak with the founder of a safe haven for newborn babies in Florida, this after the break. You're watching EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Welcome back to our program. As more parents become concerned about what their children are learning in schools, the choice to homeschool kids is becoming increasingly popular. Research from the Urban Institute found that between 2019 and 2022, the number of homeschooling families increased by 30%. Why, you might ask? Some parents' reasons include dissatisfaction with the education their kids are receiving, concerns about their school environment, a desire to improve family life together, and increased desires to provide moral and religious instruction to these young minds. With more families homeschooling, some believe that government funds allocated to public schools should be reassessed and monies should be reallocated to support homeschooling families. One man who has been at the helm of the homeschooling community for decades is Michael Ferris, a lawyer who is largely responsible for the legalization of homeschooling nationwide. Ferris has also defended numerous parents and families against people promoting radical ideas in schools and in the public square. The founder of Patrick Henry College, Ferris also recently served as the CEO of the Alliance Defending Freedom. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Set the stage for us here. Just how long have we been fighting this battle to protect kids from dangerous agendas in schools and in the broader culture? I know that your experience goes very far back in this.
4: Well, I became a lawyer in 1976, so that's uh, getting close to 50 years ago, 47 to be precise. And um, I got involved in the the public school side of the battle right out of the gate. Uh, within you know a year or two after becoming a lawyer, I was litigating cases involving parents' rights in public school and, and trying to uh, fight back against some of the craziness that was going on, anti-Christian uh, curriculum and other things of that nature. But uh, in 1983, um, our family uh, had been homeschooling for a year, and I realized there was a need for the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. So I started fighting homeschool battles in 1983. And we uh, that the organization that I started, HSLDA, is now 40 years and six months old. So it's been a, a wonderful run. And I, I, um, I stopped being employed there a few years ago when I went to work for ADF. But mm. I'm still the chairman of the board of HSLDA and have been now from the very beginning.
0: Mm, a great organization. And obviously, you know a lot about the problems in public schools. What about private schools? Is it just as bad there in your view?
4: Well, it, it depends on the private school. Uh, it can be. Uh, the uh, the vast majority of secular private schools are just as woke as the public schools. Hmm. Unfortunately, some e- even some uh, uh, Christian and evangelical and, and even Catholic schools are um, are a little too woke for what I would be comfortable with for my own children. And right. uh, and so I, I think it's you know it depends on the on the school and the faithfulness. Uh, there's an old uh, radio preacher named J. Vernon McGee that said there are three kinds of people. There are believers, there are non-believers, and in his Southern 20, there are might-believers. And so um, we have to be careful of that in the um, private school world. The, the make-believers are especially dangerous. So mm. there are faithful schools in that regard, um, and then there are not-so-faithful schools.
0: Mm. Thank you for sharing that. And we hear a lot about the confusing gender ideologies, the revisionist history that's being spread across American classrooms, subjects that parents widely reject. They don't want their kids exposed to these things. What are the subjects that should be emphasized in a in a growing child's education?
4: Well, from an academic perspective, uh, K-12 education should be about mastering two things and then exposing your child to a number of things. The mastery is two languages, the language of words and the language of numbers. Mm -hmm. Uh, To succeed in life, everybody needs to have a basic mastery of those two things. Uh, The more math you you go, the higher you go in math, you become more specialized in the sciences and engineering, that sort of thing, and computers. Um, And the higher you go in words, you might, you know, be a lawyer or be a journalist or write stories. But everybody, everybody needs a basic mastery of those two languages. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, you should have an exposure to history, exposure to science and exposure to uh, literature and other things to uh, enrich your education. But you'll master those things, if at all at the collegiate level and then even the postgraduate level. So so it's mastery of languages, exposure to a lot of good things. But then, from my perspective, the foundation for it all, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm. And so uh, having that Christian worldview as the context in which we learn uh, those skills, those exposures, those those things that we're going to master, the development of the soul along with the development of the mind uh, should not be divorced in my mind. Uh, they should be, you know, joined together. And a properly raised child will see both academic success and important, and very importantly, spiritual success.
0: Mm, I love the way how you so clearly laid that out. And and how can parents who have chosen to homeschool their children, or or even just have taken a more active role in the, in their kids' schools? Um, trying to understand what the kids are being taught, how can parents harness their influence and really change what's happening in our education system? Or have we reached a point of no return?
4: Well, I don't think it's a point of no return because uh, there have been some very successful school board races that where parents have risen up and said, enough of this. Mm. Uh, I, I think that the teachers union and the teacher training colleges are you know, very committed to Uh, the opposite ideology. But uh, ultimately, school boards control things. uh, And state legislators and governors have a lot of influence as well. And so uh, the federal government to some degree, but but I think it's the state and local that is the the bigger and more important fights in the education arena. And so engaging in that level, even if you're a homeschooler, you should be concerned for your neighbor kids because they're better off if they're receiving Mm -hmm good academic education, and not an indoctrination and wokeness. And so all of us should be concerned about what uh, is happening in our schools. It's our money that's funding it. And so as good stewards of that money, we need to make sure that schools are doing right by kids. And so um, there's no substitute for plain, old, ordinary civic activism.
0: Right, right. And Michael, we have one more question before I, I let you go. Obviously, the footprint of homeschoolers here in the United States has grown to be something we may never have imagined. Looking forward, about ten years down the road, how do you envision American education to be?
4: Well, uh, on the good side, I hope that there's a lot more choice. That the, the monopoly of the public school has been broken. We're on the way to, to achieving that, um, and. I, uh, if if that's the case, the the kind of diversity that would be more healthy for our country is intellectual diversity, where where uh, you're you're free to think differently than the the mainstream, you're free to different uh, think differently than the establishment wants you to think, mm-hmm. and you're free to teach your kids uh, in a way that's consistent with that. In fact, uh, I, I'm not a, a fan of using international law to govern our country, but it's from time to time it's interesting ideas that all the basic human rights documents, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, all three of them say that parents have the prior right to educate their children in their own values. Mm. And so when parents have the freedom to educate kids in their values, uh, I think the future for freedom, the future for a flourishing country is much better than what we see in a one-size-fits-all indoctrination, especially in the woke ideology that's controlling so much of the educational sector these days.
0: Mm, it's very fascinating. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an eye-opening discussion. Michael Ferris of the HSLDA, thank you for joining us. Thank you and to Florida, where the Supreme Court is hearing a challenge to the state's 15-week abortion limit. The conservative-leaning court heard arguments last Friday. While the lawsuit concerns a 15-week limit already in effect, the decision will determine the fate of Governor Ron DeSantis' six-week heartbeat law. If the court rules in favor of the 15-week law, the six-week limit will go into effect within 30 days. Meanwhile, Florida has other pro-life laws in place. One of these is the state's safe haven law, which allows parents to anonymously surrender a newborn for adoption, no questions asked. A safe haven for newborns based in Miami spreads awareness about this law and partners with hospitals and firehouses across the state to ensure no newborn is left behind. Since its founding in 2001, the organization has saved more than 300 babies and helped thousands of women navigate pregnancy and motherhood. Nick Silverio founded a safe haven for newborns and he joins us now. Nick, thank you for being here. Talk to me about what inspired you to found this safe haven.
2: Well, thank you, uh, uh, Prudence, for inviting me here today to, to share our mission. Well, um, my wife was involved in a fatal car accident caused by a speeding driver and we didn't have children. We had two miscarriages, one on a Christmas Eve. Mm. And uh, one night, uh, I was at home, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, dimly lit uh, kitchen, flipping through a magazine, not paying any attention. And my finger stopped on a page. And the page was about an escalating crisis of infant abandonment in the world. And I had an immediate reaction that I thought that that was God's plan for me, that that's what I should be doing for the rest of my life. Mm. So uh, uh, a couple weeks later, I went to the office. I had an IT business at the time. Went to the office and I told my employees, uh, I know what we're going to do in Gloria's name. And they said, what? I said, we're going to save babies from being abandoned. And they said, okay, uh, how are we going to do that? I said, I don't know, but we'll figure it out.
0: <laughs> wow. So beautiful. What an inspirational moment from the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy
2: Spirit, right. Yes,
0: yes. Nick, what does your organization provide to women and their babies um, beyond saving these children?
2: Our our first uh, thing is to help a mom to keep her baby. That's yeah. our first uh, mission. The second one is for her to have the baby at the hospital. And we've been very successful in making those things happen. We'll help a mom with uh, referral counseling, with baby items, with, uh, they have abuse issues, uh, one, one suicide call. Um, uh, we provide uh, uh, shelters for them. Mm. You know, we, we connect them to shelters and, um, and we help them facilitate when if uh, they're going to uh, leave their baby with a, in the safe haven program. We facilitate that with them, with the hospitals.
0: Right. What a beautiful way to meet all of their needs. And, and Nick, Florida's lawmakers are considering a law that would install baby boxes, which allow a mother to drop off a newborn without interacting with a hospital worker or a firefighter. Do you think that these baby boxes play a role in preventing infants from being abandoned? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, here's what our thoughts are. We, we, uh, we have saved the uh, Safe Haven program has served the Florida State program for 22 years. And we've developed partnerships with all, as you said, with all the hospitals and the fire department statewide. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've gained valuable knowledge uh, firsthand with that experience with our partners that we recognize that the direct surrender is the uh, for newborn in the hands of a trained, compassionate, professional uh, offers the best solution and outcomes for the mother and for the newborn mm. while assuring that the mother's confidentiality is maintained. We we also, there's no opportunity to learn if the baby has any issues no, or if there's any abuse issues. Mm. So, um, we're, we're, we partner with all these all these facilities and uh, this is the way. We we also think it's not a, a humane way of, of doing it. Uh, uh, this program works. Um, it doesn't cost anybody anything, mm. and um, we, you know we're we're here to help a mom, and we're we we also provide all the the information that I mentioned, the, all the signage at all the fire departments, uh, and all of the hospitals statewide at no charge.
0: Yeah. And well, we, yes. And that... we do not
2: charge a mom either for anything.
0: Mm, that's very insightful. It's helpful to hear from an experienced person like you, and that that person-to-person communication about the child seems very important. Um, very. Yes. Nick, Florida reported uh, just recently that there weren't any abandoned newborns in the past couple of years. But are there instances of abandonment that aren't reported that we don't know about? I think that's an important question to ask.
2: If if a, if a baby is uh, abandoned, actually abandoned, the media picks that up. And that's always the case. And it's uh, because it happens so rarely, it gets into the, into the news. So mm. in the last three years, from 22 on back to 21 and 20, there have been no abandonments uh, in the state of Florida. Mm,
0: interesting to know. Nick, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our viewers about your center, about the work that you're doing in Florida?
2: Well, we, we have helped other states as well. We have affiliates in Kansas and Missouri. We've we received calls from uh, South Africa, mm. uh, Honduras. Uh, the number of babies that we've saved are 381, which 371 were in Florida, nine in other states, and one in the country of Honduras. Wow. So we ask you to to um, look at our uh, website, uh, follow us on our social media platforms, and uh, share us because public awareness is saving lives.
0: Yes, and it sounds like you've created a template that a lot of people are adopting across the country and the world. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing, Nick Silverio of a Safe Haven for Babies. God bless you in your work. We're praying for you.
2: Can, can I say one more thing? Of course. Yeah, the the Pope has given us an apostolic blessing, so we were were so moved by that.
0: Mm, Praise God. Well, thank you again for your work, Nick. God bless you.
2: God, thank you, Prudence. Thank you.
0: That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Don't forget, you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, Twitter, now X, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. And if you're interested in more news from our nation and world, go to EWTN.com forward slash and sign up for our newsletter, The Pro-Life Pulse. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.